AI and Legal Education. Hello, welcome to 39 Essex Chambers AI and the Law podcast. I am David Mitchell, a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers, and in this episode, I'm going to be discussing AI and legal education. My guest today is Bernie Meyer. Bernie is a visiting professor of cyber law at King's College London. He's a member of the Attorney General's panel of Public International Law Council. He sits as an arbitrator. And in his spare time, he practices in public international law and arbitration at Signature Litigation, LLP. Good morning, Bernie. Let me ask you this, first of all. You're a rare example of a lawyer who actually understands the tech behind generative AI. So since the advent of chat GPT-4 in March, there's been a great deal of interest in the power of this new technology, not least in the legal sector. Is the hype justified or is it overblown? Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me and for the kind introduction, Dave. I, I think that's a very good question. And I think it's a, bit, it's a bit early to tell. What's clear from all of the media reports is that Google, who are very powerful and ubiquitous, are scared. So what that tells me is that there's definitely something there. And I have to confess, I have not used ChatGPT very much, but the few things I've tried were phenomenal and astonishing. And so I, I do think that there's a huge potential there. When you say that they're astonishing, can you give us any examples, Bernie, without obviously breaching any confidentialities? Well, the example I tried quite recently is a client, as they do, asked for a discount, which we're all familiar with. So I said to ChatGPT, my clients asked me for a 10% discount. I want to tell him that's not justified, that we've done great work and that he should please pay the entire bill. Now, ChatGPT, within about I would say less than 10 seconds, drafted a nearly perfect email saying, dear open square bracket, client's name, close square bracket, I hope this email finds you well. I wanted to address the matter regarding the bill for our services. And then it explains to the client why the work product we delivered is fantastic and is good value for money. And it continues by saying, I understand that budgetary considerations are essential and we're always open to discussing possible solutions. However, on this occasion, we are unable to offer you the discount. And that's really quite something because it's a delicate exercise that perhaps barristers don't have the joy of dealing with every day, but certainly solicitors have to deal with these kind of conversations multiple times every day. And if you think that going forward, you can just put this into the search engine and it gives you a template and then you can tweak it, you're saving a lot of time. And so did you actually use that as a model letter? I will. You will. Uh, <laughs> I won't tell you who I'm going to send it to, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, you must tell us how much you bill for it, Bernie. That's the question that our listeners will be interested in. So that's in terms of your practice, but how do you see this? Because as I said, this is a very new technology. We're only three months into it, or at least three months into the public use of it. How do you see this developing in the future in terms of further technological developments? I think taking the technology behind ChatGPT4, there was another question I asked ChatGPT out of interest. And I said, dear ChatGPT, is there a regulation governing large language models? And it started with, as of my knowledge, cut off in September 2021. Now, 
that's really interesting because what that means is that the search engine or the algorithm was fed a certain amount of data. I understand there were multiple millions of pages of text and books and entire digital works were fed to it, but there was a cutoff date. The current algorithm is based on a point in time where it was fed data. Now, if we continue to feed data to the algorithm or there's a next version, imagine we feed it chitty on contracts. Imagine if we feed it the white book. I mean, all of these are available virtually. Arbitration textbooks are available digitally. That wasn't the case six, seven years ago, but now increasingly everything is available as an ebook. If we feed the algorithm that data, it will be able to write entire sentences based on those textbooks. And so by definition, it will become a lot more clever, a lot more articulate, and a lot more precise. So I think the possibilities for our profession leveraged correctly are limitless. And in terms of moving from your practice as such to your role teaching at King's, the course that you teach as a visiting professor has the grand title of cyberspace law, big data, algorithmic governance and democracy, a transnational perspective. If you don't mind me saying, Bernie, that's quite a mouthful. Do you mind unpacking for our listeners what it is that you teach on that LLM course? Just before I go into that, I absolutely need to give credit to my two fellow co-professors, Penn Neville from 20 Essex and Jonathan Price from Doughty Street, because it's very much a team effort. And it's the three of us bringing different strengths to the table. And it's a very unique and multidisciplinary course where we try to unpack some of these issues. So take artificial intelligence for example, the course over the last four years has been completely different in almost every module. Because, for example, artificial intelligence, three years ago, we had a guest lecturer from Airbus who was the head of artificial intelligence there. And he explained by way of graphics how Airbus takes flight data, anonymizes it, and then evaluates it. Because no aircraft operator wants its proprietary data published, yet Airbus needs to know, are the planes flying well? Are they efficient? What's the fuel efficiency and so forth? But that's really sensitive industrial information. Three years ago, Airbus was still trying to work out how to leverage artificial intelligence. Fast forward three years, now ChatGPT is around. We had to completely rewrite that module. We had to start from scratch. So you might have been better off teaching classics or something that doesn't tend to evolve in such a dynamic fashion. Absolutely. Or Contract 101 or Tort, I think, would be more enjoyable. On you in your academic role, Bernie, we've heard lots of gloomy predictions about the effect that this new technology will have on the legal profession, how it could lead to large-scale redundancies. Do you think there's a threat to lecturers? Is your job as a lecturer safe? I think so. I'm quite confident. And I say this because when we started the course about four or five years ago, we had 10 students and now we have nearly 100. We're thinking of actually capping it because it's quite difficult to have debates and lively debates and back and forth between the lecturers and the students in class with such a high number of students. But I think our job is more important than ever because students are scared. I would say AI, ChatGPT, half of the students are terrified 
and the other half are really excited, really looking forward to it. And they need some guidance. They need somebody to unpack the deluge of data, give them a steer, explain to them how practice works and what they need to do to get ahead. And I've had it now multiple years where students have come to me and said, I really enjoy this subject. What can I do with it? Where can I have a career in this field? And obviously data protection is an obvious example. The information commissioner's office has phenomenal jobs and is super interesting. They were the ones investigating the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And there's a lot of need for lectures to guide the students, to challenge the students as well, because the technological underpinnings, what we're doing, going back to your initial question in the course, is we're trying to take it from the very origins of the internet to today's hyper contentization of the internet. So we're talking about the backbone of the internet, the web's physical and legal infrastructure is one of the titles. Then we're talking about jurisdiction, how the law deals with cross-border movements of data. Then we're talking about cyber warfare. We're talking about regulating big tech. We're talking about free speech, platform law, international trade law, and then finally, artificial intelligence. So it's really completely broad, interdisciplinary, looking at different legal disciplines and seeing what are the commonalities and also what is the anthropological background. Because after all, law is governance of people and the interactions between people around the world, first countries, but then also internationally. And we're trying to look at it from an anthropological angle. How is it changing? How is the law adapting to this new technology? So you talk about the, if you like, the human element that education involves in terms of the tutoring, the guidance from yourself as a lecturer. But you also talk about the appetite for debate amongst students. Am I right in thinking that the point you're making there, Bernie, is that the university experience or the college experience, the fact that people have to work together in whatever setting that might be, that's something that cannot be replaced by technology and it's a premium that students will continue to seek and to be happy to pay for. Absolutely. And what was really interesting is, of course, the pandemic, because from one day to the next, we all had to move to fully remote. And what we did is we did a few lectures as we would have done in real life without adapting them to the virtual world. And then we took stock. I asked some students for feedback sessions. And what they said is that they really do not want to be talked at for two hours straight through a microphone, computer, headphones. They want interaction. They want group exercises. If you imagine you're paying, if you're a foreign student, 20,000 pounds or more a year to come to London. You've just managed to come into an elite university such as King's College and you arrive in London and you're told, okay, you're going to spend the next year in the room of your flat chair. You're not going to meet anyone and you can listen to some people on a screen. I mean, if I had the choice between that and watching Netflix, I know which I would choose. So what we then tried is we tried to start group exercises because what was the most important thing for the students is to actually get to know each other. And before the pandemic, nobody ever thought about that. When you do a master's degree, you do it, yes, probably for the academics to learn from top professors and from practitioners. But really, let's face it, you're going for the social life. You're going to build a network. You're going to compare yourself to other 
students, meet other students and see whether you like them. And there's no way to tell if you're going to get on with your peers if you're all behind a computer. So what we did is we put people into groups, virtual breakout rooms, obviously not as good as the real thing, but then they would chat amongst themselves. They could come up with a plan for a presentation, which they then delivered. But as a result, they got to know each other. And so then after the virtual class, they could perhaps say, hey, why don't we go for a socially distant walk on the Thames, which was a real value add. And then when we came back from the pandemic, everybody came back to class. There were a few people who said, look, we're traveling. Can you record it? But everybody was in class. The classroom was always full. The debate, the students said to us in the feedback after, they said, what we enjoyed the most is the debate, the Socratian method of being challenged, being asked questions, having to think on your feet. I mean, these are the skills. And we always say to them, well, I always say to them at the beginning of the course that the real value of the course is to have Penelope and Jonathan because they're barristers. So they do advocacy for a living. And being a lawyer is about advocacy. So you talk about that human interaction that still comes with legal education in the age of generative AI and the social aspect to it. Do you detect, Bernie, in your students who by and large are a lot younger, do you detect a generational difference in their attitude towards this technology compared to older generations? Yes. So I think the majority of students are excited about the potential that this technology has and giving you the email as an example, it makes their life easier. For me, learning how to write client emails was tedious. You had to read many of them, find your own voice. They have the privilege of just putting it into a machine and getting the perfect product right out of the machine for free. Now, I fear that their biggest challenge of the new generation will be laziness. Why? What do you mean by that? Because everything is served to them on a silver platter. When I was at university, I would have to go to the library. At one point, I actually flew to Cambridge, Massachusetts, to find a textbook because the University of Southampton only had one copy and somebody had stolen it. No criticism of my alma mater. I really enjoyed Southampton. So I had to go to Harvard, where I had links to at the time, and went to the Harvard Law School, found the book, took a photocopy and sent it to my friend. It was a real challenge to find that book. The other day, I was looking for a very thorny point on sovereign immunity, and I put some very skillful search terms into the machine. And I found a 1956 decision from the Supreme Court of Croatia right on point within about 10 minutes. Now, seven, 10 years ago, you'd have to have spent a day or two to find that decision. Now, the students, as a result, don't know or don't understand that there are these different layers. They've grown up with iPhones, which is the most incredible user interface. I mean, you and I, we still remember Nokia and Windows 95 and all these sort of really old clunky machines. Well before then, I fear. <laughs> but they were difficult to maneuver and you had to put in an extra effort to get something out of it. Whereas today, everything is served on this wonderful user interface. You have all these online databases and you don't even need to leave your room to get all this information. But I think as a result, students don't really question things as much anymore. And they take things for granted. 
they have become a little bit lazy. I think that's perhaps the challenge also for us as lecturers to challenge them. And the students who are really hardworking stand out. So there are still phenomenal students out there who have superb knowledge and a great education and are not too reliant on technology. But I do think we're at the crossroads, really, as to how to deal with this deluge of data. It's interesting the way you explain that. It sounds a bit like a de-skilling threat, if you like, on the part of over-reliance on technology, or at least, if not that, then a lack of legal curiosity. Which brings me on to the final question I have, which is something we've asked of all of the people that Catherine and I have interviewed on this podcast, Bernie, and it's this. On a scale of 0 to 10, which we've called the dystopian Panglossian scale, where do you predict the effect of generative AI on humanity is going to be? I think the question can only be answered in two steps. So I think the effect of generative AI on humanity is probably going to be an eight. So overwhelmingly positive. And why do I say that? I think if you take it in holistically, if you look at quantum computing, the huge leaps we've made in quantum computing, the huge amount of processing power we all have in our pockets, I think that huge processing power can be harnessed for the greater good. So in medical advances, prolonging life, finding problems to difficult illnesses, gene editing and so forth, I think that it can have a really positive impact. But I think the dystopian problem, which is the second component, I think is the Orwellian. So if I can have the second scale, a sort of Orwellian scale of 1984 being three out of 10 bad, sort of the world in 1984. It's very optimistic for all well, but carry on. No, but then my fear is that we're also going to end up in an eight out of 10. So I think a lot of the developments we're seeing today would make Orwell shudder. So I think it's quite harmless in reality as in 1984. But what we're seeing today is this huge deluge of data has so much negative potential, the misinformation, the way technology is being used to manipulate people. And I go back to the kind of laziness factor that we're being bombarded with information. Our brains are not able to dissect and question every bit of information we're being given. And the data flows so quickly and it's going to flow even more quickly because they're building fiber cables left, right and center. There was a little graphic in the FT a few days ago that we've not even reached the beginning of the fiber coverage. So data is going to flow even quicker and then it's going to be even harder to focus. And so I do think that there's a risk that the two of them together will collide. So if you don't have checks and balances on the ethical implications and you can see the exponential growth of ChatGPT and how quickly it took off. If you don't somehow find a solution for keeping that in check quite quickly, there are risks, there are Orwellian risks more than anything. So on 0 to 10, you're going for an 8, but we're not quite at 8 yet. That's right. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time this morning, Bernie. And thank you very much, listeners, for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, I would encourage you to look at the website where you will see further episodes of 39 Essex Chambers AI and the Law podcast. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.